0: obsession with kaiju tom welcome to die kaiju network where we have a healthy obsession with kaiju i'm your co-host kent and with me is your other co-host
1: jason how's it going everyone
0: so for the first time in probably a couple of months, we're actually having a discussion here. And like I was asking Jason right before we came on, I think the last discussion we had had to deal with a set of Spectre Man episodes before we started doing the uh, commentary and brief discussion bit here. Uh, most recently until after yesterday, where we concluded that wonderful series. Uh, you can catch that already on YouTube and a few other uh, video platforms. And, and we'll as well as do- Spotify. It will soon be coming to a podcast provider near you. Well, it, it should already be available. On iTunes already?
1: Yep. Huh. And Spotify. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and so I just also have a brief uh, announcement here. Um, Jason and I, after this Sunday, when we discuss Godzilla Minus One, we will be taking – uh, our usual break from podcasting, and for those who don't know why, uh, it is because we're going to spend most of December uh, getting things to put together for our annual year-end podcast. Uh, we have yet to figure out a date on that, but um, that we usually like taking uh, quite a bit of time to figure out topics. It's usually a smorgasbord of various kaiju Pretty topics a lot of times. Our-
1: pretty much one of our longest episodes of the year
0: and last year was a four hour 36 minute podcast our longest ever and i'm very yeah. proud of that wow. um <laughs> but it, pretty usually- much,
1: it pretty much uh, uh eclipsed uh one from several years ago which was uh i think it was a overview of one of the g-fests and that was Four hours and eleven minutes, so it eclipsed it by fifteen minutes. I didn't realize
0: we did a G Fest <laughs> overview that was like four hours. It was it was
1: either that or, or something else. I completely forgot because I know I was migrating as I was migrating some of the ep- episodes over to Podbean. That I saw a huge smorgasbord list of so many things, and it topped out to be four, <laughs> a little over four hours.
0: And so we're, uh, usually what we do is we do things like year in review and kind of revisit certain things. We'll probably revisit minus one, even though we will have covered that a few weeks earlier. We didn't go to G-Fest this year, so we're not going to be really talking about that. Um, And then it's kind of just a fun little episode. It's a kind of a look back on the year that was, talking about things that have happened up to that point uh, in the three weeks or so that we hadn't been podcasting, and then sort of a look ahead in to the next year so it's just kind of a fun way to you know try to end the year and to look forward as we enter a new year and so for this particular episode if you can't tell by the shirts that we're wearing we are covering the beast from twenty thousand fathoms what
1: uh before we do actually move on um as far as the calendar uh and i know after when we get done reviewing minus one that we're going to so transition back to our original saturday broadcasting date and when i was looking at the calendar for next month um would december 30th uh work out for you
0: you gonna wine and dine me first <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think at the moment that looks okay
1: yeah, yeah, because
0: that's still far enough ahead to where if something comes up, I'll let you know. All we'll right. have to come up with an actual time, though. You better start early. Yeah,
1: that or maybe
0: nine in the morning. My Eve. time will that work for you? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case we have another long one, we 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 need to make sure we have enough time during the day to
1: do yeah. that. Maybe, maybe like maybe schedule it an hour before we usually <laughs> do it. Uh, We'll
0: see. (laughs) I'll convince you. Okay, go ahead. But like I was saying, uh, we're covering the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms in this particular episode. I think this is the first time ever Jason and I have ever worn matching t-shirts for a podcast episode. So um, we are covering that, and then that's it so before we end up uh before we start discussing the movie jason go ahead and do the usual housekeeping
1: yeah if you see a subscribe button down below or above uh wherever you're watching us from uh make sure to hit that subscribe button as well as smash or stomp the like button and if you have any uh comments regarding to the movie that we're going to be discussing here in a minute uh, make sure to have your comments down below and you can follow dyke network Everywhere or one place at our link tree URL, right on your screen there, forward slash Network, And we're available on the following video platforms such as YouTube, Rumble, Twitch, Facebook, and X slash Twitter. And also available on the following audio platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, as well as Popping. And you can find both video and audio versions of our episodes right on our website at diakaijinetwork.com.
0: All right, so let's go ahead and start discussing The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. The movie was released in 1953, and it was directed by Eugene Lowry, who, interestingly enough, would go on to direct uh, a number of other films that um, I never realized that he was a part of. So, uh, for example, he would end up directing... The Giant Behemoth, which in hmm. some respects is sort of a bit of a carbon copy of this movie that we're going to discuss. And then he would also go on to direct Gorgo. Hmm. So, uh, this was, I believe, his very first foray into giant monsters. And um, I think it's kind of telling that, you know, he would go on to direct The Giant Behemoth. Um, But if King Kong was sort of the maybe foundation for Godzilla, the beast from 20,000 Fathoms, I would argue, is more the substantive part for Gojira. Mm -hmm. Because when you watch this movie, if you have already seen Gojira and then you come in and watch this movie and you pay just close enough attention to what happens in this movie, I think you will clearly see that there are moments and and Aspects of the creature itself and and um, attributes and elements of the creature that would be inspired for Gojira next – the following year, I should say, in 1954.
1: Yeah, it, it basically preceded uh, Gojira by 16 months, and um, I was reading up on a few other things that originally uh, – this uh i'm trying to see the uh the name but uh for this particular dinosaur that they Retisaurus. call it here yeah source that it was also supposed to have you know breathe out atomic flames like godzilla does and uh and also ray harryhausen in one of the interviews was talking about some uh like very similarities between the red and Godzilla. But then it also, uh, sort of surprised me how he had some disgust towards, uh, the Godzilla series, which,
0: Oh yeah. Uh, I'm surprised you are acting surprised. Yeah. I mean, this, I didn't been, even
1: realize about that.
0: I mean, this has been talked about throughout the Kaiju community for a long time and he was very open about it. Yeah. He despises the Japanese, or I should say despise cause he's been gone for a while. Um, he despised the Japanese form of monster movies because he hated Sudamation. He thought it was cheap and silly. And he. You know, of course, he's going to embrace the stop motion aspect. And, you know, as anyone who maybe has delved into the history of Gojira knows that they initially were looking at um, stop motion for Godzilla, but obviously because of Toho and because of how Japanese, uh, you know, movie making goes, they wanted it fast and they wanted it cheap. And you can't do that with stop-motion. <laughs>
1: yeah. At least they've uh, experimented stop-motion at least a couple or so times in the Godzilla franchise Well, early on with King Kong versus Godzilla. Uh, for that, that brief regard.
0: like half-second clip between the two.
1: Yeah, but yeah, otherwise it's just um, pretty expensive and time-consuming.
0: However, and, and I don't know if you own the Godzilla vs. Biolana Blu-ray. I'm not sure if it's on the DVD.
1: I, I remember. Yeah, I believe I did because was it Kraken releasing? Did they uh, bring uh re-release? No. Oh, okay.
0: It was someone else. Um, I, I can't but really yeah, see I think,
1: <laughs> I think but. I might have gotten that uh, at least. I'm not entirely sure who released it. I'll After when we get done, I'll have to make sure – to go up and uh double check on that
0: actually now that i think about it it could be on the dvd but nevertheless my point is this when they were in pre-production for godzilla versus bailani they did uh test out some stop motion for bailani and there's test footage on that disc and where you can see how they were experimenting with it and kind of what it would have looked like so it's not like toho was opposed to it; it's just that they and kind of the industry as a whole is like fast and cheap, fast and cheap. And so pseudimation was the way to go, but getting back to the beast from 20,000 fathoms, um, this is a movie that tends to be relatively popular amongst giant monster movie fans, at least here in the States. and And I think, rightfully so uh here in just a moment we'll kind of dive into our thoughts on it but i think one of the most important things needs to be discussed first and that is interestingly enough this is the first giant monster movie sort of to involve atomic bomb slash radiation within its storyline right you know handful of years after the atomic bombs were dropped on japan Mm -hmm. and then of course by this point in 1953 the cold war was in full effect and there was nuclear testing uh you know by both the soviet union and the united states so this movie um really jump-started the whole nuclear weapon nuclear radiation thing plots that would drive a lot of monster movies at least in the United States through the 60s and uh, so this was uh, sort of the the OG of that particular type of monster movie and I think Mm -hmm. that's pretty interesting and, and pretty unique
1: yeah and the one thing too while watching this movie last night with the plot at the beginning of this film where it was taking place in the Arctic and then them detonating an atomic bomb there and then witnessing the, the and all that. It, from, from what I was reading, uh, it certainly omitted a specific thing that, um, that, in my opinion when it came to gamma it had that very similar uh sort of plot at the beginning of that film the the 1965 one where they were also in the arctic and then there was an atomic bomb involved there and then gamma awakens uh and from uh, the arctic ice and everything so to me i would say that they would have also gotten inspiration from this specific movie too, which uh, unfortunately I didn't see anything remotely related to Gamera when it came to this movie uh, when reading off of it. I'm sure maybe uh, somewhere in uh, the biography or behind the scenes of Gamera where they might have also gotten inspiration uh, in that from this specific movie as far as kind of that beginning uh, sequence.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I never thought about that. But yeah, now that you bring it up, yeah, I wouldn't be shocked if Gamera did borrow from this. What I can say is this, is that I've seen uh, a few documentaries about the creation of Gamera and uh, Noriaki Yuasa, who was involved in all the Showa Gamera movies except for Gamera vs. Barogon, um, nothing was said about this movie um, and I'm willing to bet that just because nothing was said about this movie perhaps inspiring Gamera in any way shape or form doesn't mean that they didn't look at this and borrow right, some yeah. ideas from it. Here's the thing, I mean we know Gamera is directly let's just say it, a ripoff of Godzilla, but then Godzilla got inspiration from Beast. So in there's that through line still too so mm-hmm. technically speaking <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but the plot of this uh, movie pretty straightforward uh to put it in a nutshell and there really isn't a whole lot of substance to this movie at all uh atomic testing in the arctic unleashes this prehistoric dinosaur called the redosaurus um along the way Tom Nesbitt, our main character, uh, is is insistent that he saw uh, a prehistoric creature. One gal, the love interest, quote-unquote, if you want to call it that – lee hunter sort of believes him tom spends most of the movie trying to convince dr elson and and captain no colonel jack evans that something is indeed out there meanwhile the Retosaurus attacks a couple places on its way to new york finally they realize uh, on an expedition in kind of the hudson uh valley that uh the Retosaurus does exist, that it makes landfall in New York, causes destruction. They realize its blood is toxic, that it's got uh, radiation involved. It's making anyone sick that comes within reasonable distance of its blood or itself. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? (laughs) Like a monster from Japan. Um, (laughs) And so then Tom Nesbitt, our, our main character, says a particular radioactive isotope is needed to kill kind of not just the creature itself but the radiation inside of it so that way it doesn't spread out and contaminate the city and maybe more so they shoot it and that's it <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's basically a giant monster on the loose film um so let's just kind of get into it a little bit more uh so I mean, I don't know if there's a whole lot more to say about it, but Jason, your thoughts on the story.
1: (laughs) The story, yeah.
0: Like the plot, whatever.
1: Story slash plot. It's fairly straightforward where you get uh, atomic testing and uh, the North Pole there or the Arctic Circle to be more specific. And then, you know, do a little bit of science. You get a monster that's unleashed from the aftermath of, uh, the the nuclear testing there and then uh, sort of wreaks havoc along along the way to New York and you get you know dialogue between the human elements of like the story behind this uh, Redisau and how to defeat it. that's that's essentially is pretty much a straightforward uh, monster movie here so not much uh, different in that regard Uh, and it's relatively shorter than what I expected uh, in a way Um, there's not a whole lot of well in depth stuff it's just kind of sort of uh, you know pretty much uh, gets going right away and then just (laughs) once the monster dies it's it's done there's really not much else to do
0: yeah the the story i mean it's surface level stuff and there's nothing wrong with that i mean sometimes having just a simple fun story is all that you know is needed to entertain people i mean this movie i don't think necessarily is trying to send a message at all but I do have like a couple issues with it, and one sort of ties in a little bit with characters as well. But first off, I think the entire second act of this movie is really a slog. Mm -hmm. The movie seems to come to a very brief slowdown—not a brief, but an immediate slowdown—at the beginning of the uh, of Act Two, and it involves. Tom not only trying to convince several people that the Retosaurus exists he's spending a bunch of time trying to um, hunt down survivors of other attacks so that they would come forward and be kind of his rebuttal uh, you know to everyone else who doubts him that he saw the Retosaurus. and the thing is is that this segment takes way too long like it's a lot longer than it needs to be and on top of that it plays a little bit like a mystery and the problem with that is that we the audience know tom is right that he did see something because we saw it ourselves um and on top of that what we're doing is sitting back waiting to play waiting for some of these other characters like dr elson and colonel evans to play catch up that even though we the audience know we're just kind of sitting there like okay they got to be convinced before anything major happens like yeah that's not totally how it plays out but in a way it does
1: yeah there were there were certain times uh while watching the movie where I sort of found myself just kind of looking at my phone and and all that so it kind of kind of takes you out a little bit
0: it is slow and like I said the way they play it out I think is wrong not to mention it's a lot longer than it needs to be and then the other problem I have with it and this sort of goes in with act 2 but also ties in a little bit with characters is that they try to they, they they try to develop this romantic relationship between Tom and Lee. And it's the very corny, hokey, you know, nineteen fifties buildup that you would expect out of a movie like this. But not only that, one of the more interesting things I found I, I thought about them trying to build a romance here is that not only did they not go quite as far with like hokey dialogue and Tom and Lee like trying to date each other it's almost as if the writers and maybe even the director himself quickly abandoned this whole notion of trying to build up uh, a love interest between them because like I said it sort of plays out a little bit in Lee's apartment when she's given him all these dinosaur photos to go through and he has like a usual line or two that he gives her, but then it's kind of like done. He goes back to looking through photos and then, you know, he finds the photo of the retasaurus. Like that's the one I saw, you know, and that sort of thing. And then the rest of the movie as well, not just in the rest of the the second act, but even on into the third act, there's not much of a buildup between the two. It's just, I think they sort of thought, okay, well we gave you just enough to where you get the idea that there's a love interest. And I guess that's fine because I'm tired of like the sappy crap even though I, I love these movies but I'm tired of all of it because you see it almost all the time, you know. And it's the same beats, but at the same time it's not very well done.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would I would say that I'm assuming maybe behind the scenes that they had more of a script that was a bit more beefy but due to the sort of the production budget that they had it was back in that time they relatively only had two hundred thousand dollars for a production budget so i'm assuming that they probably had a much more beefier script but due to the budget and then maybe the the time constraints and also the amount of time to maybe potentially shoot some of those scenes if there were Potentially more, maybe, maybe more going more into depth of the, the whole love story uh, aspect of of the script. They pro- they pro- possibly had to cut out a few things, and maybe that was uh, one of the things that kind of suffered the most.
0: Yeah, and I think the writing is most to blame here uh, because there just isn't a whole lot to begin with. But I'm gonna kinda roll into characters now because I think this is sort of important not just in talking about uh you know, this what I would say almost abandoned love interest story with character work. And that is I don't think Paul Christian and Paula Raymond really are that good or charismatic of actors. Um for example, Kenneth Toby, who plays Colonel Jack Evans in this film and also cecil Kellaway, who plays dr elson those are two actors i have seen in other uh places kenneth toby i've seen in things like the 1951 thing from another world he's also in it came from beneath the sea he's in a number of other uh you know sci-fi monster films kind of of that period and these two actors toby and Kellaway are very good charismatic actors. These are actors that sort of put their own twist and spin on their characters. Because, for example, with Cecil Kellaway as Dr. Elson, when you watch him and other things that he's in, he has certain mannerisms that he tends to repeat with a lot of his characters, and I almost think he adds or maybe even changes a little bit of some of the dialogue he gives because there is this... Kellaway-ism or Kellaway-spin that I will call it uh, that he has with a lot of the characters he plays. Kenneth Toby is somewhat of the stereotypical 50s uh, action hero, but in a way it's slightly downplayed just a little bit, but he has a lot of charisma as well if you've seen him in any of these other films that i've mentioned or even ones that i didn't you will realize too that he's got a gravitas to him as well that really just i think makes his characters a little bit more likable and interesting he's not some machismo guy he his characters are always i think very realistic and down to earth enough and these are two actors that are good. They're able to carry not just their own characters, but a film, especially if they are kind of near the front of being like the main stars. Here they aren't. And I think as a result, especially when you get Paul Christian and and, and Paula Raymond involved, when you're looking at the attempted relationship between them and then the movie as a whole it's a bit lackluster these are actors that I you know they just they're not good enough to really carry the film they are not seasoned or maybe just talented enough to carry the film well enough especially during the moments the Retosaurus is not on screen
1: yeah and just by looking at some of the brief history on the two uh leading roles in here the male and female that with paul uh, christensen he's mainly known as uh playing the role as uh henry higgins in uh my fair lady and just you know kind of looking at that it's uh he, never seen it and he appeared in many television sh- uh, shows and all that which kind of leads to believe that he hasn't particularly delved a whole lot in the whole uh long feature length uh, t- uh movies and all that he was kind of mainly built to be more into television and same goes with paula where she kind of spent most of her time in the whole television uh show industries of uh, feature-length films so i would say um they didn't particularly have too much uh, depth into kind of portraying uh, longer roles compared to TV shows, which are mainly a half hour and everything. So, um, so yeah, you can like what you said that they weren't quite as seasoned compared to some of these uh, other people that uh, are in this film with them.
0: And I think it's important that we put. Um more earlier Hollywood into context here because anyone who is not familiar with kind of older Hollywood needs to understand this because in today's day and age, especially with streaming services and now studios willing to put more money behind TV shows, you could be a TV actor and actually be an exceptional actor and also make a hell of a lot more movie than if you're involved in film and not only that a lot of these actors do end up you know once in a while at least going into film and starring in various um, roles so in today's day and age the the kind of the blending of tv and film is virtually complete like studios are willing to put a lot of money behind not just film but also tv shows that was not the case for many years and that's been a relatively new thing because back uh, in hollywood for many decades if you were a tv actor you a lot of times did not venture into film because Yeah, you were not considered good enough to be in feature films. If you were a movie actor, then, yeah, you more or less played in films. Once in a while, some of these actors maybe got a cameo in a TV show, but very rarely did they ever star. Some did, but a lot didn't. Like Steve McQueen, uh, for example – did end up starring in a series called wanted dead or alive a western series um james arness who played the thing in in 1951 i don't know if he was leading man stuff but he ended up playing in Gunsmoke. uh you know handful of years after that film so i am not sure because i haven't looked at their um their oeuvre, but I almost tend to think that maybe with Christian and Raymond, they became th- their bread was buttered more in TV, probably post Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, than before. And so uh, that explains an awful lot that these two actors, uh, you know, and, and I'm not trying to diss them, it just is reality. It is what it is because I see it there on the screen. Mm-hmm. They just weren't able to sort of play around more in terms of delivery and mannerisms and other idiosyncrasies with their characters, um, as opposed to the likes of a Kenneth Toby and a Cecil Kellaway. And as a result, not just because of um, choices made in the writing of the story for act. Uh, just the fact too that Paul Christian and Paula Raymond just aren't strong enough actors to really uh, at least for me keep my attention during that middle act which is definitely problematic I think for this film
1: Mm -hmm. yeah so I've got really not much else nothing else
0: (laughs) Well, then start us off with effects work. I think this is definitely the highlight of the film.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious with uh, whenever you get Ray Harryhausen, you definitely know what you're going to get. Uh, mainly uh, stop motion uh, action when it comes to uh, beasts, or, you know, either they're from the past or mythological um, skeletons, any sort of thing here we get uh Source, uh here which uh of course he sort of reused in other uh films after this uh particular film and uh i would say out of all the harry ones it seemed like there isn't a whole lot of um uh stop motion Uh, When it comes to this, because you don't get to see uh, Redisaurus a whole lot. And there's maybe some minimal uh, amount of uh, special effects in here, not only just the stop motion, but then you also get, you know, when he uh, when Redisaurus is in New York City, you'll get some of the cars that he destroys uh, that are part of the stop motion. Even uh, the building that he goes through uh, at one point in New York City, which all of that is stop motion and everything and it's fairly spectacular i mean when it comes to uh harry housing you're gonna get nothing but uh spectacular stop motion um here and of course he improves more after that um and just with uh the fifty standards it's pretty you know really really good at this point but yeah there's other other than uh, the stop-motion effects in that regard you only get maybe some minimal stuff with like uh, uh some of the scenes w- with the, the lighthouse with the human characters and then part of the uh, of new york city where some of the rubble c- uh comes down some of the people um and all that and a little little bit of destruction there's now a whole lot of uh destruction when it comes to more human elements uh in that guard most of it is just in uh, the stop motion part but there's some uh, actual practical stuff in there to kind of make things a little bit more believable but other than that there's not particularly a whole lot but at least it definitely makes up when it comes to more of the the stop motion stuff and then a little bit for the practical effects to kind of tie in the the stop motion uh, effects
0: yeah harry hausen's work here is absolutely exceptional um i mean i don't think i can really say more about it because i I mean it is just absolutely fantastic It, it i think even by 2023 standards even though stop motion is very much only a small niche thing that like amateur filmmakers may use for their own small projects stop motion more or less is dead in hollywood anymore but i still think what Harryhausen does here, at least with this movie in particular, um, is very, very good. It's, it's exceptional. And I still think it holds up for a film that is 70 years old as of this year. Mm -hmm. Um, Hey, it just so happens. a big (laughs) anniversary happened to cover it. (laughs) I just now realized that too. (laughs) Um, so yeah. Um, it's exceptional work, but you hit on something that I wanted to get to, and might as well because we both are, are bringing it up here. It's been, first of all, it's been a while since I've seen this film. I, I think it's been anywhere from six to eight years, roughly, since I last saw this film, and I had forgotten really how little Retosaurus action there is, and and I'm not saying that's necessarily a terrible thing per se because if a movie is done well enough you still feel the presence of the monster for example in uh, the 2014 Godzilla movie even though Godzilla is not on the screen every second Godzilla is always kind of the heart of that movie because the characters are always talking about him they're tr- trying to figure out the mystery of him and the mudos and all that hmm. Godzilla is still central to that story even though he may not be in every single frame of that film here with beast it comes close to that but it doesn't fully deliver on the same level uh, and again it, it, they try momentarily in a very awkward moment i think just because of how it's written in lee's apartment when they're trying to like build some chemistry between the two there and they're just other bits and parts over the course of the film where it's kind of like the Retosaurus takes a momentary backseat, but by and large yeah the Retosaurus is a part of the film but not good enough
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it's again I go back to that act too and how that act is structured and I realize that other than the slowness and semi-poor writing involved with act two the acting um of our lead characters our two lead characters that the next thing that really i think hurts this movie a little bit is the fact that there's little Retosaurus. that yeah they give you enough and they're not a like they show it right away like they don't really tease you at all about what this thing is Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, I like that. But then at the same time, in a general sense, the retosaurus I don't think the footage makes up for some of the lackluster moments of the film. And the New York destruction scene, when I watched it in preparation for this podcast, I realized I'm like – That not only was short, it actually was kind of underwhelming. Like I thought there was maybe more destruction than there was, uh, and there really wasn't. Mm -hmm. And the battle at night when they finally wound him and then the soldiers end up getting sick uh, after coming in relatively close contact with his blood, it's very brief. More time is spent on those soldiers collapsing and getting ill uh, than – on the Retosaurus, them attacking the Retosaurus. And um, the roller coaster scene at the end, it's very interesting. I think it's a unique thing that, I mean, it's even featured on our t shirts here. <laughs> it's very unique. In that you you know you trap a monster inside of a roller coaster deal, and um, then you end up killing it, and then there's fire and all that makes for a very visual feast. But the mm-hmm. interesting thing too, and a brief side note, is there's a bit of a plot hole. And how did he get? into the the middle of that roller coaster without damaging part of it because that whole roller coaster is already intact when he's in the center of it when that whole sequence begins so there's a whoopsie moment there but (laughs) (laughs) um but i really wish this movie would have done a little bit more of that but then like you've said a couple times this movie's budget was $200,000 which even for a movie like this is actually not that much yeah. and to put it into perspective King Kong 20 years earlier guess the budget of that one
1: it was pro- i think i could have could have sworn i've seen it but i would say it would be much more than this um, probably around the ballpark of uh, half a million.
0: You are absolutely correct. and that not only was it <laughs> Do I <get> a <laughs> 000, Not only was it five hundred thousand dollars, it was five hundred thousand dollars in the early days of the depression. Okay, $500,000 in 1933, and you were to adjust that for inflation today, that's still a decent budget. And that was a lot for a movie that, you know, was being filmed several years after the Great Depression began. That's a lot. And it shows all of that money is on the screen in the original King Kong here. It. You know, it's a little less than half of that Kong
1: budget. I would, and, and I would so, almost say half of the budget for uh, the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms had to go towards the stop motion for potentially for kind of the little amount that's being used.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, in many respects. If, if this movie were even given like an extra $100,000, I think the movie could have been improved. First and foremost, I would trade out our lead actors for some more charismatic ones. But then, yeah, I would spend some of the extra dough on you know either extending or adding more scenes of the Retosaurus. And I think the biggest thing that kind of held this movie back from being, I think, even more spectacular is its budget. You know, because like I said, 20 years earlier, Kong had not only a budget that was $300,000 more, but even when you adjust it for inflation, like $200,000 a piece of 20,000 fathoms, if you were to throw that into 1933, that would have gone a hell of a lot further in 1933 than in 53. So -hmm. in many respects, this was operating on close to a shoestring budget I mean you know and for a film that's supposed to be a special effects movie you know you would prefer to have a slightly larger budget or even a majority of that small budget you have go towards the effects but you know anyone who is uh familiar with monster movies of the 50s and 60s you understand that more times than not that's not the case so Mm -hmm. Um, it's disappointing because uh, I love the Retosaurus. I love Harryhausen's work here, but the lack of Retosaurus action and just the other things I had mentioned over the course of this discussion, it does hurt the film a little bit. It it, it makes it makes the film a little lackluster. I hate to say.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. I've got nothing else as far as uh, the visual effects portion um i've kind of said my piece on it
0: i want to say though that there are a couple things i found funny over the course of watching this film one is that back at the apartment of lee uh, when tom's going through those pictures of dinosaurs you can kind of see through some of the pictures he's looking at and the moment when they show the Retosaurus picture when you fast i mean excuse me rewind just before they showed the picture it was not the picture of the redosaurus he was looking at. It was a picture of an old Tyrannosaurus painting hmm. that he was looking at. So there were some whoopsies there.
1: And, and, I, found, and I do notice that when they were at Lee's apartment where uh, he was talking to um, um, some uh, uh, someone, I forget, I think it's uh, the colonel. Maybe the colonel or... No, he's talking uh, one, to the
0: operator who's trying to get in touch with that captain of a vessel that got attacked.
1: Yeah, and he definitely knows that there was a cutout. Um, kind of stopped right there because he saw a little bit of a jump uh, right there. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And then the other
0: funny moment, I, I have to say this. This is another thing that I... I don't want to say it hurts the movie as a whole, but it really doesn't make this movie look good i guess it's the moment in which dr elson is killed by the Retosaurus. he's in this um sort of a bathyscope type of deal with another uh member of the navy and so the Retosaurus shows up and of course he's all excited and he's so excited that the moment when the Retosaurus comes up and gobbles that bathyscope that I find, first and foremost, I find his death to be underwhelming. That the movie handled it poorly because here is a very lovable old man character who also is portrayed by a pretty good actor. And it's just a footnote when he dies. It's just a brief footnote. There's no real impact to it. However, I will say I like the fact that it killed his character because it upped the stakes a little bit, saying no one is safe, even though it's the 50s. We know Tom isn't going to die and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other thing that I thought was just sort of unrealistic was the moment the Retosaurus is about to gobble that bathoscope. Dr. Elson is still excitedly talking about it, describing it instead of like, oh, no, like, you know, getting ready to like, no, don't, you know, have a moment of realizing he's going to die. Instead, he's like, and the most interesting thing about it is. That just is bullshit. (laughs) That was a poorly written moment right there. Like, I can understand. A scientist who maybe discovers something within their own field being very excited about it. But if something, if that particular thing that they just found is about to kill them, I find it very hard to believe they'd be like, Look at how pretty!
1: <laughs> also, <laughs> you know? I, would like, I would like to know if uh, the rhinosaurs actually swelled that whole um, little submarine capsule thing whole. Because <laughs> it did. I'm sure it did. Because that was pretty decent size <laughs> in a way. Well,
0: and there was that weird shot. Here's another thing, too. There was this overly long shot of a shark and octopus fighting, and you could tell it was in a tank.
1: Yeah. Okay. There were certain instances where you saw a little bit of the tank itself and all that.
0: Yeah, and they try to make it seem like it was happening, like, in the middle of the ocean because – Their bathyscope wasn't; it didn't reach the floor. It was kind of hovering in the middle of the water, Mm. but you see the floor, and they're looking straight out the window at it. I'm like, "There's no floor there." And then they're making it seem like they're
1: on the floor. And then you also see the octopus is kind of, you see the underbelly of it, like on the side of whatever the tank that they're shooting. This whole kind of ocean scene from, and yeah, it's pretty obvious
0: it's poorly done it's unnecessary um it's overly long but then too they try to make it seem like the retosaurus comes up on the shark and the octopus and swallows him that was a special effects shot that i thought didn't look good because mm-hmm. it just it was it was terrible it was it terrible felt- how it was filmed i don't know how else it wasn't good
1: yeah i feel a little bit out of place
0: yeah, I would have cut that whole shark-octopus thing out entirely. That was not needed. Yeah. You didn't need that.
1: Nope.
0: <laughs> uh, anything else you want to discuss? Otherwise, we can go into final thoughts and a rating.
1: Um, I would maybe just point out as far as um, the score of, uh, of the film. Uh, I'm not sure who specifically uh, did the score here. Uh, music by... David Butolf. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Um, I would at least say for the film itself, I would say for the score, it's relatively good. And I think it uh, fits this uh, specific movie pretty darn well. And I think a lot of the music in here was – Uh, utilized pretty well and kind of did what it was supposed to do
0: yeah I thought it was pretty good too it's the kind of um, music that I associate with an awful lot of um, you know science fiction slash monster films of the period and I mean that as a compliment because it provides gravitas to what's happening on screen Uh, I, I don't necessarily want a score that is very um, I just forgot the term I wanted to use, but somber and just kind of um,
1: the thriller played
0: a little bit. Uh, I want something that is sort of bombastic to capture the carnage supposedly that is going on screen, and just kind of the enormity of the stakes that are happening as well.
1: Yeah, uh, a lot of the scores were put in pretty well to kind of give it give the film a little bit more of an atmosphere of of uh certain aspects of it kind of showing or telling maybe uh oh i've lost my train of thought uh, here but um definitely like when uh, the beast is coming or the ratasaurus is going to be coming or arriving soon that there's specific music in there that's kind of preparing you um, in a way uh, to kind of get you ready and uh, and, uh, yeah it's kind of your typical sort of uh, 50s uh, type of music for uh, sci-fi and I think it a lot of it kind of gets um the vibes not the soundtracks themselves kind of uh reverberate on other uh sci-fi films later on um in that regard and yeah it's it uh, does pretty well and does a pretty good job
0: mm-hmm. all right so do we want to get into final thoughts in our rating?
1: Um. Oh, the one thing before we do. Uh, you mentioned about the director here goes on to do uh, the giant behemoth. It's kind of interesting that you say that because uh, in the scenes where you're at uh, Elson's um, kind of sort of office there where you have – it's pretty – enormous and you had this entire It's very spacious. <laughs> you had this big uh source like skeleton where he says that it's um, uh, kind of an ancestor to retosaurus. I wonder if the director sort of got that idea to use that sort of this source ancestor to retosaurus to be more or less of what the giant behemoth was later on when he directed that film I'm not got sure um, it.
0: I, I don't remember a whole lot about the backstory of giant behemoth but I do remember this Willis O'Brien who had done the effects of Kong Did the effects of Giant Behemoth, and that Giant Behemoth was produced by a UK studio rather than a West, and I think there's an interesting backstory to that. I have the Giant Behemoth. I'm not sure if there's a documentary on that DVD or not. It's been a few years since I've seen that movie as well, but what I do remember the Giant Behemoth is that it is a surprisingly good movie. In fact, I… I might even like it a little bit more than this. Um, but I, again, it's been a few years. I would have to, you know, watch it here, like, within the next day or two and, and find out. Maybe I will tomorrow. <laughs> Who knows? I'm actually kind of curious about it. Maybe I'll do that this afternoon. But, Maybe because, uh,
1: I mean, you've got uh, more than 24 hours. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm, to look uh, at yeah, it, I, so.
0: Yeah, I know. But um, yeah, let's just we'll go have to definitely... In. We'll have to definitely cover that uh, soon enough as well, because I there's an interesting backstory to how that got going and why it is the way that it is. But it, I think too there are similarities, uh, certain shots in Giant Behemoth that are similar to what you see in Beasts from Twenty Thousand Fathoms as well. But uh, I would advise you to pick that one up too because that's. That's a fun film. It's it's interesting in and of itself.
1: I know it's it's been a handful of years since I've last saw anything uh, towards giant behemoth. Yeah, we got to cover that now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I'm 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 actually anxious to watch that now. <laughs> I'm sure you are. <laughs> but uh, I'm just gonna dive into my final thoughts here, and I'm gonna do letter grades instead of was it the buy, rent, or pass thing. Um, I'm abandoning that.
1: (laughs) um, (laughs) That's fine with me.
0: The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms is definitely a movie that I think deserves respect um, for those of us who are giant monster fans. And I think even more so for Kaiju fans because this definitely, like I said, is one of the parental films to Godzilla. In fact, it may even be more uh, of sort of the main influence for Godzilla, even more so than King Kong. And so, uh, the film as as a whole, it's. I, I hate to say this. Uh, I, I'll say it this way. I respect the movie for the fact that it introduced atomic weaponry and atomic radiation as a plot point for a monster film because that is the basis for many of these types of films throughout the 50s and the 60s technically all the way up to today you know with japan and the some of the kaiju movies that they did obviously more specifically godzilla but then other films but mainly in the 50s and 60s here in the states it was kind of when that whole plot point was very more mainstream and so um it deserves my respect and and i and i give it my respect with that being said though i was unfortunately a little underwhelmed by this film uh as i've stated over the course of this discussion that i think the the two main actors are not that charismatic not that interesting uh definitely part of that is the writing a a decent chunk of that is the writing Uh, another part of that is the actors themselves good to great actors will always add a little pizzazz or a little extra to their performances than what the script gives them so it's especially during that second act when the film really ends up lagging and part of it again is not the actor's fault um the the actors when they are on screen just aren't enough to carry it Mm -hmm. so that's very unfortunate uh some of the writing choices made over the course of this film too i think heard it again that second act again and how elongated it is and how they structured it the fact that uh, they try to build a romance but they almost seem to abandon that as quickly as they try to start it um you got to figure out what you're doing. Do I want them to build a romance there? No, not really because like I said earlier, <laughs> I I see it in virtually every movie of, of this type during this period, and they all play the same way, and it's just – I'm kind of tired of it because I've seen it enough times. But if you're going to commit to it, then you need to commit to it. I would rather have the usual schmaltzy crap than for you to like sort of – like Open up the door and put one foot in, but then to just be like, oh shit, and then quickly close it and say, no, we're not going to do that. Um, the lack of Retosaurus action and kind of some of the destruction moments, especially during the New York sequence, sadly uh, under delivers. And I don't blame Harryhausen for that I blame the budget I think with the, with a $200,000 budget for a special effects film yeah it's not gonna fully deliver on what you want out of the effects area which is sad because I think if you're making a special effects film a bulk if not a majority of your budget even if it's by one penny should go to the effects budget and nothing else and um that's just unfortunate because the Retosaurus is a spectacular looking creature. Harryhausen does an awesome job of animating the creature and anything else it interacts with as well. Um, the only special effects moment that I think is bad. And I just talked about this a few minutes ago is that moment where they try to make it look like the Retosaurus eats the shark and the octopus. Um, With all that being said, the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms deserves our respect. We should give it to it. It is mildly entertaining. Once the Beast hits New York, it does pick up a little bit, becomes a little bit more entertaining. However, it still is a bit lackluster with its action. Even the final sequence of them trying to uh, shoot the Retosaurus and then try to get off the roller coaster, it's a little slower paced and less dramatic than it really should be, it's still, it's a decent film. It's not spectacular. And I hate to say that because, like I said, this is, you know, a a good Harryhausen project that displays his ability to animate creatures. And it's just sad that everything else surrounding it minus Kenneth Toby and Cecil Kellaway is lackluster, to say the least. So my final grade for this, I'm going to give it a C+. I think it is a little bit of above average, and I think the reason why I am doing that is more because of Harryhausen's work here. Uh, Harryhausen's work, if it wasn't as good as it was, this could be anywhere from as high as a C to probably as low as like a D if it wasn't for his work on here. Mm-hmm. And um the beast from 20,000 fathoms. Hey, if you love it and you think it's one of the best giant monster movies that the Hollywood has made, hey, great. Awesome. I'm happy for you. <laughs> but what I saw in preparation for this really disappointed me in a lot of ways. And um that made me sad, honestly, because this was one of the driving forces that inspired Godzilla. If not more of a driving force than kong itself and um that just was disappointing and so i'm giving it a c plus it's an ever so slightly above average giant monster film
1: yeah uh, with this being its 70th anniversary and having seen it the first time in odd number of years um it's a little bit different than from what i remember in probably for a bit different from what Kent remembers uh, here. And the one thing that I've realized overall when watching this movie is, is that it felt short, uh, shorter than what I was expecting to be, at least. And it felt like there wasn't a whole lot of uh, red-a-source here. Granted, there being uh, really good uh, stop-motion effects, Uh, hearsay when it comes to Ray Harryhausen. He does a phenomenal job, but other than that with the sparsely bare-bones production budget that it had, and then being granted, being distributed by Warner Brothers, you would think when it comes to Warner Brothers that you'd think that maybe you should have gotten a little bit more of a budget uh, in that regard. But didn't <laughs> get quite the budget that they want, and hence that probably have affected the the script, where it could have been more beefy in that regards, and maybe have a little bit more in depth characters uh, in here. Um, yeah, just sort of, I would say overall, with the uh, production budget, probably just made things a little bit lackluster and a bit disappointing in a way and kind of made the story more straightforward um on the surface pretty much for the majority of throughout the entire film but i would also like to give props to this film at least that if it really wasn't For Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, we may not have gotten a Godzilla franchise or kaiju genre for that regard. And we may not even (laughs) have a podcast dedicated to uh, everything kaiju in that regard. Maybe possibly Tokusatsu in that way. We may not have had Ultraman or some other uh, Super Sentai or what have (laughs) you. History would have been a little bit more different. Um, But in that uh, sort of sense, yeah, it's you do get uh, some moments here and there. And some of the human elements was pretty good. But with um, the, the two lead actors and actresses in this film were only only delved mainly into the television industry instead of the feature-length film industry, you're not going to get a whole lot of sort of experience in that regard. Um, Or, um, oh, I can't think of anything right now. But, um, yeah, so uh, the budget kind of hampered things a little bit of the movie making things a little bit shorter than usual with the script obviously. And then probably uh, maybe sort of hampered a little bit on the, the the stop motion effects. Maybe it could have been a little bit more if you added on more to the production budget. Um, Yeah. It's a little bit, Lackluster overall, but um, I would give uh, the beast from 20,000 Fathoms at least a borderline B Um, minus. It's still pretty good for its time um, with uh, some modest character. uh, I would say uh, supporting characters, uh, phenomenal uh, stop motion effects uh here kind of you know a straightforward story but um things just didn't quite go uh didn't get quite executed well enough um but i'm still sort of giving it props and tipping my hat to at least inspiring uh other films after uh its release so um I'm still going to give it a borderline B minus.
0: All right. And with that, um, we are entering minus one territory. But before we enter that territory, we will be back Friday at 11 11- I almost said 11 p.m. 11 (laughs) a.m. Eastern Standard Time for our commentary on Shin Ultraman. So I think that'll be fun and interesting. Jason has yet to see it, so I I think it'll be a treat to kind of see Jason's um, on-the-spot reaction as we go through that film. That should be fun. And then we will be back Sunday for Godzilla Minus One, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on that day. And then we enter our uh, hiatus until December thirtieth at the moment. So our
1: year in Kaiju Palooza.
0: Yeah, for (laughs) a ten-hour show this year. Oh God no! (laughs) uh, uh, We hope to uh, had fun listening or watching us, and uh, thank you so much for doing that for your support and views. And so with that, we'll see you in a couple days when we do our Shin Ultraman commentary
1: and before we sign off as usual if you see the subscribe button down below or above wherever you're watching us make sure to hit that subscribe button as well as smash or stomp uh the like button and if you have any uh comments regarding to uh, the uh, the film that we just reviewed make sure to have them down below and you can find everything Daikaiju Network all in one place at our link tree URL right there for slash Daikaiju Network and we're available on the following video platforms such as YouTube, Rumble, Twitch, Facebook and Twitter, and also available on the following audio platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and Podbean. And uh, you can find both video and audio versions of our uh, episodes right on our website at So,
0: Alright, once again, thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you here in a couple days. We'll give you yep. a breather tomorrow.
1: Yeah, we'll see you guys in the next 48 hours. So, take care everyone.